Good morning. It's good to see everyone here. Um, my name is Jordan. I'm the new guy here still. I still feel that way. I've been here for three weeks now. And I'm the pastor of adult ministries here at Seoul. And uh, it's great to be with you this morning. It's great to share. Um, I'm going to take a second really quickly before I start just to introduce my wife, Nicole, who's sitting over here. She just arrived. If you want to stand up and wave, Nicole, and just say hi to everyone. She does exist. I think people were starting to wonder a little bit because um, they always asked me when Nicole was coming, but she's here and happy to be here, and so we're happy to have you. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, we're talking, we're doing a, a preach-off this morning, and so each speaker is going to take about 10 minutes and just share with you um, something that we consider our passion, and so the theme this morning is going to be one of passion, and so let's just start with a definition from Merriam-Webster. Um, Merriam-Webster Dictionary says that passion is a strong feeling or enthusiasm, of enthusiasm or excitement for something or about doing something. And so passion is, is, is something that drives, it's, it's, it's enthusiastic. Pastor Rick Warren, author of The Purpose Driven Life, says this. He says, the creative force behind all great art, all great drama, all great music, all great architecture, all great writing is passion. Nothing great is ever accomplished in life without passion. Nothing great is ever sustained in life without passion. Passion is what energizes life. Passion makes the impossible possible. Passion gives you a reason to get up in the morning and go, I'm going to do something with my life today. Without passion, life becomes boring, it becomes routine, it becomes dull. You've got to have passion in your life. And so this morning, we are going to be talking about passion and we're going to be talking about things that we are personally passionate about as pastors and staff. And so let me begin just by kind of getting you to think here to asking a question. Have you ever met someone who was passionate about something so much that it literally piqued your interest or caused you to take notice of something you couldn't care less about before? Anyone? You met someone who's just passionate about something. They're always talking about it. They're always going on about it. It's important to them. Um, an example from my life was when I went to college, I was never much into reading and learning in high school. Unfortunately, my marks would definitely affirm that if you were to see my report cards. Until I went to college and met some of my professors and met some of my fellow students who were passionate about learning. These people were passionate about knowing the scriptures. They were passionate about growing in knowledge. And after meeting such people, I became more interested and I began to see the upside to what didn't previously interest me much at all. You know, their passion inspired me, you could say. It encouraged me to begin to care about the things that, that are close to my heart and begin to search out what those things are. And so what are some of the things that we are passionate about? I can give you just a couple examples. Um, myself, personally, I'm a sports fan, and um, I'm, a, I'm a huge New York Jets fan and a huge Winnipeg Jets fan, and unfortunately, my teams sometimes have a tendency to break my heart, and um, I'm not going to get into that too much. I think some of you could probably, you know, kind of gather why that is the case, but, you know, when, when I watch sports sometimes, I, 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 I've noticed sometimes I don't get the invite back, because when I watch sports, I don't just sit there and put my feet up and lay back and watch the game, but I'm one of those pacers. I'm like, you know, standing by the TV, right? If, if we're in a tense movement, I'm walking up and down and kind of pacing across the living room. Um, you know, I, I probably should be on salary for the amount of stress I go through watching the New York Jets play, right? I like to think of myself as a bit of an assistant coach, but I'm passionate about it. I love it. I love watching football games. I, 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 I talk when, when no one's listening to me, right? You know, it's a, you get passionate about these things. 
Um, music's something I'm passionate about. Some of you um, can, can understand that. You, you, you play your instrument so much, you want to master it, you want to learn it, you want to know it. Um, I'm really into vinyl records, and so I, I'm often, you know, searching different places, looking for new stuff. I love music. I'm passionate about it. Um, some of us are passionate about social justice and social causes, and that's awesome. And, and, and we don't just stand by and let things happen, but we want to let our voices be heard. And we want to get behind different sorts of um, campaigns and different sorts of things that are going to help bring, you know, justice to the world. And we're passionate about that. Reading. Some of us are passionate about reading. Some of us are passionate about traveling. I had a buddy in, in, when I was in college who was just passionate about Elvis. Anyone ever met one of those people before? Like, this guy loved Elvis, and it was so funny because he ended up being Joe Kendrick's roommate, right? And so <laughs> in our first year at college, Joe walks into his, his room, and uh, his roommate's sitting there, and literally there's like a, a fold-out poster blanket of Elvis on the wall, right? And he had an Elvis alarm clock. He had an Elvis pillowcase. And like, you name it, Elvis was in the room, right? And he was passionate about Elvis. He could tell you everything about Elvis, I'm going to pick on my wife here just a little bit because she said I could. And um, you know, always know how that ends up, right? But she said I could bug her a little bit this morning. But my wife, when she was younger, she was passionate about this character named Elf. Anyone remember that TV show? And her mom wouldn't re really let her watch it, but she loved Elf. And so she collected Elf stuff. And so whenever she got the chance, she would sneak an episode. And for her eighth birthday, um, for Nicole's eighth birthday, Elf sort of showed up to her eighth birthday. We posted this, Nicole posted this picture on social media about, about a year ago, and un underneath the comments, everyone said, that's what nightmares are made of, right? <laughs> that is traumatizing. Like, doesn't it look like the picture's taken in, like, a boiler room, for crying out loud? <laughs> and so be careful sometimes. Here's a little moment where we could just pause for a minute and be careful about your passion and make sure it's in the right direction, or you could end up having that show up at your house, Okay. So our passions need to stay on point. Enough goofing around, but you get what I'm saying. You know, when we're passionate about things, people take notice. It, it, it drives us. It gives us energy. And there's a lot of things that I'm passionate about that I could talk to you about this morning. But for me personally, there's one common theme in my life that probably drives me more than anything, and that's my passion for God and my passion for Him and His kingdom. Passion to experience Him but probably just as important, passion that to see other people experience him as well. And so in the book of Matthew, just have a teaching text here. In chapter 22, we read this. We, we read hearing Jesus is being questioned, and the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are getting together, and they're trying to trick him, and they're trying to get him to answer questions improperly. And it says this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so we are reading, and the Pharisees are directing questions towards Jesus, and they ask him what's most important. And we, we find out very quickly that it's, what's most important is that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we read about that, we have to keep in mind that that doesn't mean loving him with separate parts of our personality, but really it's literally loving him with our whole being. Heart, soul, mind, and strength isn't something that is a separate, you know, all, all different separate parts that we love God with, but the point that's being made is we need to love him with everything, with our whole being. Everybody loves something, but what is it 
that you love. Think about that for a second. You see, Scripture gives us some examples of what not to love in our pursuit of God. The Pharisees are the ones asking the question, and Jesus points out all throughout the Gospels certain things that the Pharisees loved that really shouldn't have been so important to them. The Pharisees, Scripture says, they love to be seen in prayer. They love to be seen fasting. They love to be seen doing good deeds, and they weren't doing these things necessarily out of their, their devotion for God and people, but they did them so that men could see them and praise them. They love the place of honor. They love the best seats in the house. Anything at the expense of others would have described them in some way. And it's not that they had a lack of love. When you think about it, it's not that the Pharisees had a lack of love. It's just that they loved the wrong things. They loved the wrong thing. And so loving God isn't about elevating our interest over others or elevating our need to be seen or praised by other men, but it's really about him and his desires and putting him first. Loving him with our whole being, heart, soul, and mind. And so Jesus, knowing what the Pharisees loved, he answers the question that they asked by giving them things that are actually worthy of their love. And that's God and that's people. That's our neighbors. That's those around us. And so not only must we love God, but we must also make sure that we experience the fullness of his love ourselves, know his love personally. And this is so important. And so what do I mean by that? Well, Myself, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and so growing up Catholic, um, I, there were a lot of things that were kind of taught to me about God that were very good and very, you know, powerful, very helpful, but also just somehow I picked up some, some, some ideas about God that probably weren't necessarily on point, and that's probably of my own doing. I kind of grew up having a very tough view of God. You know, I never understood his love. I never understood his acceptance. I um, never really understood grace. For me, my, my relationship or any interaction I had with God was all about doing, you know, just enough that he wouldn't be upset with me. Anyone relate? It's like having more good things in your life than bad things so that God wouldn't be angry with you. And so this skewed version of God that I had, this, 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 this improper idea of who God was, didn't really exactly help me walk in relationship with him. And I didn't really quite grasp what grace was or how much God loved me until about my second year of Bible college. And some of you say, really? You went through your whole first year not knowing how much God loved you? Yes, I did. <laughs> And I think for some of us, we, 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 we can go through large portions of our life wanting to serve God, wanting to do things for God, wanting to please God. And yet, a lot of the time, it's more law-motivated than it is motivated by the perfect and good relationship we have with him. That love relationship, knowing his love and knowing how much he has already accepted us despite what we've done. And so I think we can all rec we could, we could all probably admit that there's sometimes we get our views of God a little bit messed up, right? Sometimes, you know, I, 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 when I talk to my youth in Saskatoon about this, I often talked about sometimes we see God like he's a cop around the corner. <laughs> like he's just kind of sitting there ready to give us trouble or something, you know, ready to watch us blow a stop sign or do something like that. Sometimes we, we, we think of God like he's just like a sweet old man who's so out of touch with 2015 that he, he can't quite really grasp what's happening here. And there's different ways in which we view God, and there's, and there's wrong ways of seeing him. And the, prop, the problem with having an improper view of God and how he feels about you is that the more devoted that you become to that view of God, the worse off things are going to be for you. And so what does scripture say about God? In John 3, 16, one of the more famous scriptures that I think we all know, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, for God so loved the world. 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And so I want to make a declaration that one of the things I love to talk about, one of the things I love to share with people is that God loves this world. You know, it's not an act of condemnation that he came to bring, but he came to bring an act of salvation and love. He's not mad at the world. You know, I think sometimes we get this idea that God's just sitting up there fuming at us. At sin and evil, sure. But towards people, towards us, his heart has always been one that's been full of love. And in a lot of ways, the gospel is really about experiencing his love and allowing that to change how we live. Taking us from a a relationship of law and bringing us into a relationship of love. Taking us from the, the need to to taking us from duty and bringing us to that place of privilege. One of the things I've always thought about our relationship with God is that our experience with him should dictate our expression. Our experience should dictate our expression when it comes to the love of God. We've all received love from Christ that wasn't fair. And we should dish out that same love to those around us. You see, the love you received from Christ this morning in church, the love that you yourself experience, maybe as you worship this morning, maybe as you spent time in prayer, that same love needs to be reflected out there in the community. Sean Foyt says it like this. He says, we do not have hope at adequately sharing love with our spouses, children, parents, or neighbors without first going to the source of true love. It's very tough to love others in a Christ-like way if we ourselves haven't experienced his love firsthand. And so when we love God, yes, we love him with our heart, soul, and mind, but I think a big part of it as well is that we also experience how much he indeed loves us. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And one of my struggles with this verse is is that I always used to approach this verse with with a law mentality. And so I used to always approach this verse, and this is basically how I would read this scripture. I would read it like this, that I will prove my love for God by obeying his commands. Anyone ever read it like that before? You almost read into this verse, like, you know, I'm going to prove to you, God, how much I love you by obeying your commands. But then I realized that if I'm in a love relationship with God, and if God loves me and I love him, then I'm just going to want to naturally obey his commands. I'm going to want to naturally please him. And I almost began to see this verse. I almost began to read it like this. This is just the, my, my little interpretation. But I almost began to read it like this. I almost began to almost see it say, fall in love with me, and you will naturally obey, obey my commands. Think about that. Donald Miller in his book, Searching for God Knows What, says that a lot of the times the gospel is more like marriage and less like formula. A lot, like a, mar- a lot like a relationship with someone that you love. Do you do things for your spouse simply because you have to? Or do you do things for them because you want to? Now, don't get me wrong. There are times where we have to do things for each other where it's not going to be all like, yippee, right? And we just rush out and start doing things. But, you know, what? I, I, might I suggest that there's a problem if I wake up every day having to do things for my wife, Nicole, just, you know, stomping my feet and thinking, ah, was going to go here today, but I got to go get this for Nicole. Nicole stayed home for work, got to make her soup. (laughs) 
How many of you think that would be a healthy relationship if I just walked around all day thinking I had to do things for my wife? And that's not the way it works in love. That's not the way relationship works. I don't do things for her because I have to. I, I do things for her because I love her and I want to. And in our relationship with God, I think sometimes we miss it sometimes when we get this idea that we have to do this or that we, we need to do this. We need to earn this from him. We need to earn his approval. But when we begin to recognize that he loves us and we love him, the dynamic changes. And we don't just go from I have to do things for him, but we recognize that we have the privilege that we get to do things for God. Are you with me? We get to serve him. And so we love God and we love others because we recognize indeed how much he is first loved us. And so this morning we are sharing about our passions. And a big passion in my heart, a big passion in my life is that others would come to also love God. That others would come to love God, but not just that, but that they would equally experience the unconditional love that Christ has given each one of us as well. That they would come to see that God does love them, that he is on their side, that he is looking out for them. He has indeed came for them. And in turn, that, that that experience would be reflected in how we treat those around us. Love God, allow God to love you, and allow that love to lead you into loving other people. Love God, love people. That's a passion in my heart. Being passionate about Christ because I recognize how much he's passionate about each one of us. I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Shauna. Well, good morning. My name is Shauna, and I'm the Children's Ministry Director. And, you know, people have often asked me what my passion is. And my passion, the thing that keeps me awake at night, the thing that keeps me spending money on education, the thing that gets me excited and motivated is the ministry to the families and children here at Seoul. This is such a passion for me because I have seen the effect firsthand in my professional and my personal life of this ministry. Now, I grew up in a small farming community in Saskatchewan, uh, Wayburn, which is about an hour south of Regina, a place at the time where most of my immediate family lived. With both of my parents working outside of the home, we spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And you know, this was a wonderful introduction to the spiritual side of life. Now, my paternal grandmother was a very strong Catholic lady, which heavily influenced the time that we spent with her. As we were cleaning up or helping her make supper, we, she would often read to us out of the common book of prayers. On Wednesday nights, if we were at her house, we would go and listen to the priest as he preached the homilies to the congregation. And my brother and sister and I would have our little bag of toys and we'd be racing them up and down the hardwood and pews and to keep ourselves occupied. That was until we found the kneeling benches that were attached to the pews, and we started playing with those until inevitably one of us would let it go, and then the big loud boom would echo through the church, and we'd sit up quick and get back to our spots and make sure that we weren't disrupting anything again. But I remember as I got older, as I was sitting in listening to the priest and hearing the prayers of my grandma, that I started understanding more about what the priest was saying, and I was understanding more the prayers that my grandma was reading out of her common book of prayer book. And I could see right then that this was a foundational time in my life as I experienced the holiness of God, and that God had a plan and a purpose for me. 
Along with my spiritual development in this area, I also saw how the church was a place of belonging and how the church was a place where every person was to pitch in and help, whether it was volunteering, whether it was teaching kids, whether it was being involved in music. There was a place to fit in and a part to belong and be a part of something significant. And as the years went on, my mom eventually enrolled uh, us kids in a children's program that was happening at a the small Pentecostal church that was in Weyburn. And this is where I found the place where I fit in completely. I started going to church on Sundays, and I often had to bug my parents to actually take me to church because we had moved out to a farm, and my parents uh, didn't go to the same church that I went. So I'd have to get up, bug them, um, grumble, get in the truck, into town. And soon it moved from me bugging them to come to church every Sunday to I began to pack an overnight bag Friday morning when I left for school. I would get on the bus with my overnight bag and I would stay at different friends' houses throughout the weekend until Sunday night when the last church service was over and I'd eventually show back up at the house and my parents realized they had, did indeed have three kids after the weekend. But you know... I had a friend who didn't mind me staying with her and her family. And I remember, I still have these amazing memories of spending time talking together, doing life together, doing service together, and, you know, being a part of the big church. And, you know, it was when I was in grade eight, I realized that I wanted to spend the rest of my life working in a church. And I planned to go to Bible college. And the rest, they say, is history. While this is a short snippet of my story, this is the foundation for the passion that's still part of my life today. This passion is a part of my daily talk with Murray as we dream, as we plan, as we strategize what the ministry to the children and families at Soul is to look like. Why is this a passion for me? Well, like I said, not only have I seen the importance of this ministry to family and children in my own life, but I see it in scripture as well, where this should be a passion of the church too. In Deuteronomy 11, 18 to 21, God relays the following to the people of Israel. He says, so commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Tie them to your hands, wear them on your foreheads as a reminder. Teach them to your children. Talk to them when you are at home, when you are on the road, when you are going to bed, and when you are getting up. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that as long as the sky remains above the earth, you and your children may flourish in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. This illustrates to me the importance of the church pouring into the lives of the families so that parents, guardians, grandparents can be the primary spiritual caregivers within their families. The verse does not say, leave your children at the church and their spiritual education will be complete. Rather, the verse talks about how the family is to be a place where scripture is talked about, lived out, and made to be an overflow to the world around them from what they've learned in the safety environment of the home. Now, within the Jewish culture, there is an emphasis on talking on the scripture and making it a part of the everyday talk and walk. When you go to Israel, they have it tied on their doors, they have it on their foreheads, they have scripture tied to their prayer shawls. Now, I had the privilege of going to Israel when I was in Bible college between my second and third year, and I saw this firsthand. There was the Jewish Mesuzala that was on the doorpost of the, of the hostel that we were staying in. And the point of that was that you would stop, you would touch it, you would pray, and you would continue on. So no, whatever room you were going into, you would stop, touch, pray, 
and continue on. They were little uh, draw points in the day that would make you think about God, make you think to pray as you were going house to ho- uh, room to room in your house. So this was something in a busy day that would allow them to stop and refocus on God so that God was always at the forefront. Now this would also filter down into the conversations in the home where it would be at the dinner table, they would talk about God. As they were going about their daily business, they would talk about God. It would just be an overpouring of what was already happening in the house. The children knew the scriptures and they had large portions of the Old Testament memorized and they knew the laws that guided their life. Now, one thing I fear in North America is that we don't know the scriptures or even the books of the Bible like we once did. I know I'm just as bad. If I'm looking up a scripture, I pull up my phone and I plug it in and out it comes and I can scroll different versions and have a hundred Bibles at my fingertips. But I'm fearful that if I were to go try and find something in my physical Bible, it might take me a little bit to get to the right spot. But would, you know... When we have the word of God that is so much a part of who we are and a part of our daily conversations, these, the kids will see not only the bi- physical Bible as important, but they will be able to go and they'll be able to be, see the importance of the truth and live that out in their lives in school and sports and everything else that they're involved in. Now, the teaching and spiritual education of families cannot be the sole responsibility of the church. And here's the reason why. On average, when you think throughout your year, the kids that would come to Seoul would be in attendance for 52 hours per year. So if you start factoring in spiritual holidays, if you start factoring in sporting events and things like that, maybe they would only be in the building for 40 hours a year. 40 hours a year is hard to be able to lay a foundation down. However, the family unit has 8,736 hours in which they would be able to teach and be able to input and give spiritual guidance and growth. To me, this demonstrates the need for the church and the families to work together to ensure that the resources are made available for parents to be able to feel confident in the role that they are given for teaching their children the things of the Lord. You know, it can be overwhelming looking for devotional books, for Bibles, for music, for trying to figure out how to teach your kids about things like prayer and communion and baptism. But the church needs to be a place where families that have questions can come and we can provide the resources you need to be able to be confident in your teaching to your children and being able to reach out within your own families. Now, the spiritual investment of a family does not come without a fight. There are many things, both good and bad, that will try and take your time and prevent you from forming the foundational component for your family. In Nehemiah 4.14, it says, After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Nehemiah understood what it meant to fight for what was important. While serving as a cupbearer in Babylon, he heard about the state of Jerusalem. The walls had been destroyed, and he took it upon himself to see that the walls were rebuilt. The walls were a defense strategy for the towns in the ancient Near East to ensure that the people were safe. With the walls down, this was the opportunity for the enemies of Jerusalem to come in and ransack the cities. Nehemiah understood that things that worth doing are worth fighting for. 
and he was digging his heels in to make sure that his city was going to be protected and that the project would be seen to completion. Now, Nehemiah had to endure a lot of plots of destruction. He had to encourage the people not to give up. He had to rally the people to stand firm as the enemy was plotting against them. And they had to work as a collaborative force to see that the wall was going to be, be rebuilt safely. As the church, we want to be the ones that are standing beside you, helping you fight the spirit for the spiritual well-being of your family. That is why we offer things like family nights, kids clubs, speakers that come in to talk about parenting and other avenues so that you can be equipped with everything that you need to see that your family grow and succeed. Now, as part of the effort uh, in the, to the ministry of the Families at Soul Sanctuary, we're going to be launching a partnership with Faith at Home Ministries Canada, where our families are going to be able to fill out a survey so that we're going to be able to see where we need to be able to strategize and develop plans to help families grow here at Seoul. So we are going to be launching a survey, which will be able to be found at faithlife.me, and it, I just encourage you, when we launch the survey, if you can please take a few minutes to fill it out. Again, this will give us uh, a real good guidance of how to develop the programs that we need to, for the families here at Seoul so that we can offer, offer things that you can feel confident in your families and confident that your kids are growing in the things of the Lord as well. While the verses that I shared excite me about the opportunities to minister to the family and children, Jesus himself gives the greatest example of ministry to children and families, and to the importance of that. In Mark 10, 13 to 16, he says, Once, when some mothers were bringing their children to Jesus to bless them, the disciples shooed them away, telling them not to bother him. But when Jesus saw what was happening, he was very much displeased with his disciples, and said to them, let the children come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as they. Do not send them away. As I tell you, as seriously as I know how, that anyone who refuses to come to God as a little child will, ne will never be allowed into his kingdom. Then he took the children in his arms, he placed their hands on him, and he blessed them. In reading this passage, Jesus illustrates two things, that we are to have childlike faith and that as a family unit, there should be every opportunity taken to share faith with children, that we should take the time to invest in our children so the voices that they hear is laced with love and knowledge of the Heavenly Father. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this passage, shares, children should be directed to the Savior as soon as they are able to understand his words. Also, we must receive the kingdom of God as little children. We must stand affected to Christ and his grace as little children to their parents, nurses, and teachers. While the task may seem overwhelming, my passion is to see that the families that are within the church are equipped with the tools that they need to help their children succeed spiritually. It's not an us versus them mentality, but it's using the resources the church has to empower the families to see the gospel being spread not only in their own immediate family circles, but in and around the world they come in contact with. Thank you, Pastor Shauna. Um, I think I've introduced myself twice already this morning, once in the video weekly and once at the call to prayer, so I'll refrain. Um, but you can call me the other Jordan. Uh, you had dibs because you spoke first. And actually, it wasn't until you introduced us all as the pastors and staff preach off that I realized that I'm the at staff or and staff component of that. I'm the only non-pastoral 
person speaking today. Uh, I'm a teacher by education and uh, I guess a videographer by trade and student ministries director by profession, if you want to put it that way. But uh, so today, my, the passion I'm going to speak on really comes out of that education that I have uh, kind of in education. Uh, but before we get that, let's get to the teaching passage that we're going to look at for the next 10 minutes. And it comes from Colossians chapter 3. And it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must always forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ, which rules in your hearts, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing praises or singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So if you were to ask me to describe myself, maybe to fill in an about me section on Facebook, I would probably in there somewhere mention the fact that I'm a lover of literature. I love to read. I love books. I love English language, the art of communication. There's something about talking and about listening and about hearing and about studying which resonates with me. And my studies of literature have led me to many books uh, from Greek and Roman trage tragedy. And if anyone has ever read anything from that era, you know how weird things can get and how really fast weird things can get in the, in the case of Oedipus or anything like that. Uh, but I've also read things like modern-day teen fiction. Maybe I'm a sucker for uh, elusive figures in John Green's books. I don't know. But when it comes down to these things, oh, only a couple of you get that reference, but I know you enjoy it because you're literature buffs like me. I, <laughs> not <laughs> so all that being said, though, uh, literature is something that connects people across cultures. It, it connects people across time frames. I can read some old dead guy, and I can resonate, it, resonate with it right here, right now, today in the 21st century. And there's something about literature which connects people. And, and I think that there's something that compares itself to literature in this connection that it can bring. And I was reminded of this connection last summer while we were hanging out in Russia. And uh, this is the concept of community. And it parallels literature quite well. When we were in Russia, we didn't speak the same language. We hardly knew each other. We had met just then. But we had a connection that was brought through the community that we shared, the community of Jesus Christ. They believed in the same God that I believed in. And though we could only com communicate with each other through an interpreter, there was something incredibly special and incredibly profound about those moments that we shared. We were, in, the, in those moments, family. And I find this connection that, that I had with the body believers there uh, similar to the one that we have here. Because I think it exists both there, but I think it exists here too. And this connection goes further than any literature or linguistic connection ever could. It goes further than reading books by guys who are long dead or guys who target their books to teenage girls and you still enjoy them. But 
this connection goes deeper. And, and it comes down to, at the end of the day, the fact that we're saved by Jesus Christ. And the fact that we can have community with each other. The fact that we can experience forgiveness on an unprecedented level. And love that is ultimately satisfying in our hearts. And now, I, I look at how we take this sense of community um, say that I experienced in Russia, or maybe the community that we read about in the book of Acts, and how does it come to fruition here in North America in the 21st century? And I think that maybe we could look back on, on what we're doing and maybe make a few changes in the way that I'm passionate about here to communicate this. Let's make a few changes and, and see if we can go from point A to point B, right? If you never change, you never grow. It's something that I'm always telling our high school students. You have to get yourself out of your comfort zone in order to see progress. And it goes a little something like this. I, I believe that our consumeristic approach to the North American church today has caused a couple problems. Uh, the joy that I experience in community with people, and maybe that joy that you could compare to literature or to Jordan with his New York Jets or Winnipeg Jets I'm on board with, uh, but those joys, the same joy we find in the Christ-like community, ha have been replaced with things like selfishness, selfishness and, and, and dependence upon ourselves. Uh, we've transformed the body of Christ into something that can, we can use to fulfill selfish desires. And borrowing from our teaching passage in the book of Colossians, allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly has become transformed to finding a church where the pastor preaches only what you agree with. And where teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom has been replaced with running away when somebody calls you out for your sin. And we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God has been replaced with finding a church that offers you the best worship experience. And we've become experts at making God into our own image, neglecting his teachings in lieu of our own desires. And I see it regularly here at Seoul. Uh, I, I laugh about it sometimes. People will come, people will go, and then people will come back again. Because in this city with so many churches, you can leave here and go there without any sort of connection or any sort of accountability and do your own thing. You can lose yourself free of Christ-like community. And ultimately, in the process, you can neglect the plan that God has for his church. But there is hope. And Paul's letter in Colossians is an example of what the body of Christ should be like. It's people who forgive one another, people who call each other out in love, who put love first in all things, who sing together those praises of thankfulness, who continually to seek more knowledge through teaching and education. And, and last year, I took the, the whole year off of meeting with a life group. My schedule was kind of hectic, or so I justified it to myself. And I, I took the year off. And by the year's end, actually, it wasn't even before summertime had rolled around, I realized that there was something missing from my life. And this here, we can come to church on a Sunday morning, and that's great, but let's be honest, it's too big to experience true community for an hour and a half on a Sunday. There was something missing, and that's when we got a summer life group together. And I was like, this is exactly what I was looking for. And I, I, I said earlier, I, I see hope. And I see hope in the Christ-like community of young adults who meet all over the city, all over the week here at Soul Sanctuary, growing closer with each other and tearing down the walls that hold us back. 
And I see hope in the life group of families that meets here on Friday nights. They cook a meal together and they allow their kids to grow up with one another. And I see hope in a program like Celebrate Recovery. Meeting weekly, walking alongside each other in the toughest times of life. I see hope in our service teams, whether it's 8 a.m. in the kitchen baking cookies and singing songs, or whether it's putting the chairs out here, or whether it's upstairs in the video booth making sure that things happen. Hanging out with high school students, assembling a new stage, I see hope in those things. And I see hope in following the instructions of Jesus Christ, who set out before us, calling us as members of one body to commune with each other. And I want to implore you to consider the words in Colossians today. How do they apply to my life? Ask yourself. And maybe you've been coming to Seoul for a couple months. Maybe it's time to take your next step. Maybe it's time to get connected, as the buzzwords we throw around. If you're done high school and in that 20-something age range and you're here, you're checking things out, and maybe you have been, talk with me after the gathering. Literally, my job is to help you find that community. And Jordan McClellan is a pastor of adult ministry. His job is to facilitate connection between people. He'll be at the info station after the gathering. Go talk with him. And, and community can look like a lot of things. It can look like service teams. It can look like life groups. It can look like learning through the school of ministry and a whole lot of other things. It could look like Celebrate Recovery. The list goes on. But the best part of community is the series of payoffs that it has. Community will meet your practical needs. When there's a group of people who meet together weekly and somebody comes forward and says, guess what? I don't have enough money for rent this month. We were sharing stories of it as staff earlier this week. Community comes together. A community will open your eyes to the needs of others. It's not until you sit across from somebody who says, I can't pay my rent, that you realize maybe I could help them out. Community empowers your relationship with God. When you can come together, study together, learn together, be together, you grow together in your relationship with the Lord. And, and community helps meet our basic need for love. Let's face it, we all have it. We're looking for love. We're looking for somewhere to belong and no better place than when you are amongst a group of believers. And perhaps the most important is that community gives you the chance to forgive. Instead of running away from conflict as fast as you can, wherever it comes up, community gives you a chance to look somebody in the eye and to begin sorting out your issues with them. To resort to conversation as opposed to gossip. This concept of community, we will hurt each other. And that's maybe one of the hard things that we have to grapple with and wrestle with. We are going to hurt each other, but community gives you a point to work through those things. You guys are fabulous. I am thrilled to have you on our team. And you, Shauna, who has been terrified because the last time you spoke in a setting like this was three years ago. We need to hear your voice more. Fantastic. That's the most I've ever heard you guys clap. What's wrong with you? 
You know, passion was the topic that we, we talked about. And, and, and my passion, when asked, what's your passion? My passion is life transformation. I think, though, that every Sunday when I come and I stand before you, I believe that you hear that every time I speak. So today, I want to share with you where I am in light of, like, where I am right now in light of what's happening in our world. And Matthew 5 says this, Jesus, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, you know, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you are, and he's talking to the disciples, he's talking in essence to you and me, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. And so in the same way, believers, if you're a believer here this morning, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, his followers, to Christians. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And, and I'm writing this this week, and I've had actually um, a, hard, a hard time doing this. Because I'm watching the nuttiness and, uh, and on the TV and the news and, and the Facebook. <laughs> and I'm reading the different sides that Christians or so-called people who identify themselves as Christians have taken regarding the refugee issue. And listen, this is not a political life lesson this morning. This is not a political rant. And then I read how numerous state governors, you know, declined that they will not accept any Syrian refugees. And, you know, I have to be really honest. I understand the fear. I really do. Dash. You know, these operatives can and will sneak in with thousands of people fleeing the war-torn areas of the Middle East. However, there is a holocaust going on in our world. And speaking for myself, and I'm sure for many others this morning, I cannot understand the coldness towards refugees coming from other Christians. I was raised in a small old church here in Winnipeg in the North End called Living Word Temple. The irony that this church is now part of our ministry, I can't get over. You know, I was taken there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. I was taken there like I think almost 24-7, seven days a week. You know, the bare minimum, I was taken there at least four times a week. And it didn't matter if you listened or goofed off. I was, I, my gift was goofing off. It was a spiritual gift. I had a very, I had a nailed down, you know, getting cuffed in the back of the head, you know, having to go to the bathroom 18 times during a sermon. You know, that, that was me. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if, it doesn't matter if you're there paying attention or just goofing off. If you spend that much time in church... And hear me loud and clear. You're going to pick up on the major themes whether you wanted to or not. Because you're hearing it all the time. And one of those major themes is that, you know, we need to be courageous. You know, we need to go out there. We need to, you know, fear not, impact our neighborhood, share our faith. Let's be strong. And, and then there was this other one called, you know, love your neighbors. Like, oh my goodness, we were in the north end. It was tough. 
You know, you think it's tough now. I actually think that the area around Living Word is, is not as tough as it was when I was growing up there. You know, it, but it's tough regardless. You know, we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, another thing that we, would often be imposed upon me is that, you know, life is eternal. Uh, and all these themes are throughout all the Bible. And, you know, be strong and courageous is what God told Joshua. Uh, Esther's uncle says to her, perhaps, you know, you are here for such a time as this. Jesus goes off and... Um, my son is Facebooking me from Brazil. Really? You, you want to deal with that? <laughs> you want to tell him to get his life right? <laughs> my goodness, that's funny. <laughs> Josh is away with Simone and they're in Brazil and that, that's funny. I just have to laugh. Maybe their flight is canceled. Who knows? And I'm on a roll. Go, go, go. We're talking about passion. Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body. And uh, he also told a story that, you know, I've talked about, that on the danger scale would be around there. It was the equivalent, if we wanted to make it modern day, of an Arab uh, carrying a bloodied and beaten Jew into a Jewish settlement for help and looking after this guy, right? We called it the Good Samaritan. And then we continue to read throughout Scripture and we come across this wonderful passage in James 1 that says, you know, religion that God our Father accepts as pure uh, and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And it's interesting because it's not just Bible stories that, that had our attention when growing up into a church, but the stories of missionaries. And, you know, my parents were always bringing people in from all over the world, sharing about all, you know, far off lands. And they would tell us about these stories and amazing stories. And those are the days that I was riveted and I didn't have to go to the bathroom 18 times during the sermon because I wanted to hear what these people were saying about what was God was doing somewhere way out there. And I was taught to admire people uh, like that. The, the, the idea that nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing in this world, is, is more important than expanding the kingdom of God. Not even my own life. I was taught that. And it was drilled into me since I was a child. And you know what? I still believe it's the truth. And this week I had the opportunity to Skype with one of our missionaries in Moscow. Alexander, and you know, it's, it, the funny thing is we never pooled our notes. We said, here's a topic, let's preach and let's let the Holy Spirit begin to work it together. And so Alexander says, hey, can we talk? And he, we were Skyping and he, he's the pastor of Moscow's Emmanuel Central Assembly in, in, in Moscow. And he's actually one of our missionaries. We support him monthly. And he oversees 11 rehab centers and a Bible school and approximately 160 churches as well. And Alexander is, is constantly running and caring for people. If you know this guy, he's crazy on the go all the time. Never mind his driving skills. But in May of 2015, his life changed with an unexpected turn. And one of his elders in his church was driving on the highway when they had a head-on collision with a semi. And the elder, and along with his wife, was killed instantly. And their oldest daughter that was there, um, the one on my right, I, I guess, yeah, that would be on your right, that she's the oldest, Irina. She died a few days later. 
but there were still six kids that were left without a mother and a father, aged 8, 9, 11, 12, 16, and 17. So uh, Pastor Alexander, what he did is he actually stepped in and, and proceeded to do the funeral, and he commented on how sad it was and how the kids looked like, he said the kids looked lost like little birds, was his words to me, with the rest of the family being there. And the, following the funeral, the, the, the family had a meeting, and Alexander begins to talk to the extended family, and he asked the remaining relatives what they were going to do with the surviving children. The relatives, however, wanted the property that was owned by the father, the deceased father, to be sold and divided amongst the aunt and uncles. And it's in that meeting, it was clear that none of the, 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 the remaining relatives actually wanted the kids. And so hear me, all the relatives, <laughs> denied the responsibility of raising those children. The family actually wanted to give the kids away. So with no other option, Alexander and his wife, Elena, took the kids into their own home. And Alexander then had to see, seeing the dynamic what was going on, had to then uh, legally secure the property owned by the deacon so that uh, uh, he legally secured it for the children. And he now has plans to sell it so that he can give each child an equal portion when they turn 18 or older. And so the Prashagas just, you know, released their own children uh, who actually, I'm hoping that uh, in, in 2016 you're actually going to meet them because we've had, we'll be sending out an official invite for them to come to Canada. But their own children to, to uh, university, because I think it's the next slide, guys. Yeah, there's Roman and Christina. And, uh, you know, the Prashagas were empty nesters. And now what has happened is they got six brand new kids in their lives. And, 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 and so you're just going, you've got to be kidding me. And of course, he's telling me stories that I can't tell because I don't know who's watching our podcast in Russia because I know they watch our podcast in Russia. But he's telling me stories that just make me laugh. And, and, but it was a learning curve for them. And so the Prashagas have put them into school and music classes and soccer and the arts. And they're, you know, Alexander goes, we're busy from morning until night. And, and Elena spends hours with them also as well, separately, just processing their grief and their loss. And, and Alexander describes how the kids sleep going to school and then coming home from the events at the end of the day he says they're just all conked out in the back of the vehicle and he mentioned you know Jerry it's you know Jerry it's not easy for us you know uh, you know it's it's a learning curve for Elena and me and uh, you know the, 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 here's the crazy I go well does the state help you you know yay Putin um, and he goes they give us $130 per month per child. Here in Canada, it would average out, and I thank you to my foster family, Langans, for the details that we have here. On average, between $600 and $60 to over $800 per child per month, depending on their age. And that's if there's no special needs involved at all. Do you see the discrepancy between our two nations? The Russian ruble right now, because I said, what's the ruble value? Because what was it when we were there? 35 to 1 or something like that? Okay, so a couple of years ago, it was 30, it's 65 to 1. Now, we complain at 75 cents to every American dollar. It's 65 rubles to one U.S. dollar. To live in Moscow is an incredibly expensive area. 
And so, you know, even to try to make ends meet because there's this embargo from the West on Russia because of the Ukraine, right? And so just recently, their oldest, uh, the oldest girl there just turned 18. She moved out. She's with some friends in an apartment. So the Prashargas only now have five kids left over. And there are two children as well, Roman and Christina, who are now both engaged as well. And so that's your recent family photo there that I could rip off Facebook. And so what, what, what stuck me out, or stuck out to me, I think, as opposed to sticking me out, but stuck out to me, <laughs> was that the Prashagas saw this need. This is crazy. They saw this need and they stepped up in an amazing, selfless way to meet that need. Now that's salt and light. So much so that, you know, we, that night I was talking to, to Alexander and, and I shared, the, the steering committee had a meeting and they came in and I shared the story with the steering committee and they requested that I come before you all today. And that we would take up an offering for them at the end of the gathering. Now, if you're visiting Seoul, this is new for us. I don't do this. So, I want to leave that there with you because I'm not done. Jesus says, but to you who are listening, he says this in Luke. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it should be Luke, but I put the wrong reference up there. Luke chapter 6. But to you who are listening, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, then turn to the other as well. And if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them and give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Just do to others as you would have them do to you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that for you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend those from those you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. I'm thinking, isn't that theft? But anyway, uh, when your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind and ungrateful. He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful. Just as your Father is merciful. And so this is what I don't get. That as Christians, you know, for years, if you think about it, and we look at the global perspective, as Christians, you know, we have been sending people into these nearly impossible areas, parts of the Middle East to be specific, as covert missionaries. It's dangerous. I hear that all the time. We can't tell you where we're going. I actually went to a conference a number of years ago. Um, and I kid you not, it was a, a covert missionary conference in L.A., and in order for me to get there, I was given, okay, you need to go onto this website, you need to log into this website and go from there. I go onto this website, I'm just going, this makes absolutely no sense. You know, some sort of like technology conference or whatever. And I'm logging in, I'm doing everything I'm told. I, and, I, and now I understood why, because everything was covert. 
It was wild. And this is what we have been doing when we send people into parts of the Middle East and it's dangerous and, you know, assuming that they can even get in, there's a high chance that, that they're likely to, to lose their life. You talk to Paul Craker and he's been all over the place, especially in Africa, and stories of where, where people are prepared to go and probably spill their blood to share their faith. And evangelism is not only hard in these areas, but it's deadly. And now, if you think about it, as you're watching the news, now we have hundreds and thousands of beaten, hurting, hurting, orphaned, widowed, and broken people trying to come to Canada and the United States. You know, is it possible that a small percentage of these people want to kill Westerners? Doesn't matter. Refugees are no refugees. Terrorists are going to find a way. Life is terminal. We will all die. Welcome to Soul Sanctuary this morning. <laughs> you know, what are we supposed to say? Dear Syrian refugees, you know, there's some bad dudes and dudettes, you know, mixed in with y'all, so we don't want to let you into our safe country. You know, the one that has random shootings and stabbings almost every week. Never mind what's happening to our neighbors in the south with the shooting up of schools and the movie theaters and the like. You know, we've all seen the photo of the little boy who's washed up. We've heard people talk about how desperate the situation is there. And you know, someone here from Seoul, who was, it was actually Martin. If you want to talk to Martin, he's the guy who put the lighting together for our stage along with Brendan and Will. And you could talk to Martin because he was just in Greece a little while ago. And he shared with me that, you know, even these people at Greece, they don't have work really. They're still out in their boats. Why? So that they can, you know, they can't even make ends meet per se. But they still take their boats out and they go and they pull the refugees out of the ocean and they bring them to land. Next picture, please. Next picture, please. Okay, it's not gone, but it's there. He goes on, he tells me that there are people who open their homes to these strangers and, and, and they go out and they, they collect whatever they can in, in clothes and in food and they tell the refugees to help themselves. Go help yourselves. And the refugees can't believe what's going on. This is all taking place, when you think about it, in the bankrupt and socially troubled country of Greece. You know, we all have these news sources that, that told us that, it, you know, it's just male refugees and, you know, the, the women and children aren't even there. And, you know, so what, is we, what are we as Canadian Christians and because I want to be inclusive for some of you here today and non-Christians supposed to do. You know, do, are we sit back and say, hey, refugees, have a nice life in the land of opportunity that you just floated to. You know, we're going to send some food over for a little while, maybe some tents, but you know what? Please stay clear of the human traffickers and the report. Any suspicious activity you see to the police and God, may God bless you. 
you know, I'm a little wound up. Our deaf interpreter, I sent her my draft. She goes, well, you toned down your inside voice on your second one. So if you think I'm hard now, you should have read my first draft. But I, I, I suppose it's possible to be wound up and emotionally stirred over things what's going on in our world because you know what we can get in our cars today and complain about the snow watch our football games and just go on with life on a nice Sunday afternoon but if you want me to curb my enthusiasm if you want me to curb my passion here's what I then challenge you to do open up your Bible and make a convincing argument that Jesus wants us all to be safe more than he wants us to reach the lost and help the hurting of this world. I grew up, uh, Jesus trumps all. (laughs) It's the God card, man. It was Jesus who said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So am I supposed to believe that or not? Because what do I want for myself? Seriously, this is what I'm thinking. What do I want? For, what do I want for my family? What do I want for my kids? What do I want for my spouse? What do I want for my parents? Do I not want the best? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I'm not saying that all of us have to, you know, quit our jobs. We all have to go be missionaries and have monkey on our heads and things like that. You know, we don't have to go and be aid workers. I'm not saying that at all. But the crazy thing is. Not, the crazy thing is, not only do we not want to go, you know, Jesus, the Great Commission, is going to all the world, and, and, and not only do we not even want to go, let's say, to our neighbor, the crazy thing is, many don't even want them to come to us. You know, I'm genuinely confused because somebody helped me out here. So here's the deal. It makes no sense as believers. And so I talked about this a while ago, and I said, if you're interested, contact me. And we did. We, we, we have a committee formed here that's going to be spearheading Soul Sanctuary. Sponsoring at least one refugee family. I just signed the documents. And there's going to be a whole lot more to follow regarding what is needed and... and uh, how we got to put this all together, and it's coming, so just be patient with us. But it's not just, the, we're not just coming to you, the church, and I want you to hear me loud and clear, because this is my passion, this is my pet peeve. But we want to get all, all those other people in our circles of relationship. I'm not talking church circles, some sanctuary circles. I'm talking about circles of your relationship at work, the community club, your outspoken neighbor. We want them to assist us in this project. And so my challenge to some of you is go after your loud mouth Facebook friends who says, you know, the government needs to do something about this and push it in their face and say, guess what? I got a place for you to get involved in some life transformation. Because it really has to come down to this, is what are you, what are we 
going to do about this opportunity that has fallen into our lap? We're the church. What's my passion? It's life transformation. Personally, what Shauna's talking about in terms of family and our responsibilities to kids and to youth, and what Jordan uh, Michalski's talked about, and, uh, and thank you for mentioning Celebrate Recovery and all, everything else like that, and uh, <laughs> what Jordan MC, we call him Jordan MC, just because, you know, this one's Jordan, this one's Jordan's MC. Uh, and, and, and about loving God and loving people. This is our passion. This is why we are here. And so it's personally, it's locally, but it's also globally. And you are a generous community. To which I say thank you. Some of you are a little tightwads. I just want to throw that out there. Again, I don't know what people give, but I know some of you are just tight. You can say amen or ouch. But I believe as a community of Soul Sanctuary, we can make a bigger difference in this world. And not simply sit around and navel gaze. We can make a dent. I believe we can, but I have to ask you all that we can partner together and join us in this. This is not just me and, and my one thing. This is Today we are raising a love offering. Something over and above your normal giving. And it's going all to the Prashagas. And so simply put, here's my first challenge to you. Is will you give to the Prashagas today? And if you have extra cash or whatever you want to, just go to the joy baskets, take a form, and put passion on the form. If you drop a check in, just put passion in your subject line on the check. And anything that, that has passion on it, we're going to send it to the Prashagas. If you go, oh, I want to give with my credit card, go online, do text to give right now. Anything that comes in today on text to give. Super easy, 100% secure. We have the cards at the Joy Baskets at the uh, uh, Info Center. Just text and we'll put it, we'll give it all to the Prashagas. Will you give today? Not asking for much. Maybe you want to contact the office later this week. Again, I don't know who gives what, so that's, that's not the issue. But maybe you just want to contact the office and say, you know, I wasn't prepared to give. I'd like to give, you know, during the week or whatever. Get a hold of Ellison. She'll look after you. And we can make sure that your donation is where you'd like to go. Maybe we... we sprung an, a nerve with the Syrian thing. Like I said, give it some time. We're asking to see if there's other churches in the community that want to partner up with us. We have to underwrite $27,000 for every family, so we're only prepared to do one family right now. But hear me loud and clear. There's a whole world of people outside these doors that have money. You hear what I'm saying? Oh, your church is all about money. No, it's not. Right now, the church is about getting together, seeing people with passion to help rescue somebody because if that was me in my family, I would hope and pray that a representative of Christ would reach out to me. And so you have friends, you have family, you have neighbors, and we're going to be starting a fundraising process to bring a, at least one family in. We're asking other churches to partner with us. And let's be the hands, the ears, the mouth of Christ. Let's be the flesh of Christ. 
to our world today. That's my passion. Jared, if your team could come up here. This is what you do. Yeah? Stand with me. Father, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for those who shared. And uh, I thank you that we're under, not under the law, but we're under grace. And I thank you for what that means. And I pray that if there be any confusion here over, you know, what we've sort of talked about, that you would bring clarity in discussion. I pray that you would stir in us an affection not for you but also for your creation. And I pray that uh, you would constantly come up in our hearts and our minds of what it is that stirs our affection for you and that we would fill our lives with those things knowing that 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 there's transformation that occurs. So I pray, disturb us, Lord. Disturb us when we're too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have uh, come true because we've dreamed too little, when we've arrived safely because we've sailed, you know, just too close to the shore. Disturb us, God, when the abundance of things that we possess, that, you know, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life, and we have fallen in love with life, and we have ceased really to dream of eternity in our efforts to build a new earth. And we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare be more bold, to venture on wilder seas where storms will show your mastery, where maybe losing sight of the land we shall find the stars and we ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push back the future and strength and courage and hope and love. So God, take us out of our comfortableness and may we impact the world in which you have placed us. And in ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing and those receiving the blessing did likewise. So may God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice and oppression and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. And may God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain and rejection and starvation and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Be blessed and see you next week, people.